My number one album. Big shocker to me. Also folklore. Whoa. Are you ready to dive into all things Taylor Swift? Good for a Weekend is the ultimate podcast for any Swiftie. With new episodes dropping bi-monthly, as well as bonus episodes to give you real-time reactions to the latest rumors and news, it's your one-stop shop for all things T-Swift. We also love connecting with our fellow Weekenders, so be sure to connect with us on Instagram, Twitter, and or Discord to share all your Taylor thoughts. Good for a Weekend is available wherever you get your podcasts. I know. Well, just is that like it's a perfect album when you need mealtime inspiration it's worth shopping kroger where you'll find over thirty thousand mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie and no matter what tasty choice you make you'll enjoy our everyday low prices plus extra ways to save like digital coupons worth over six hundred dollars each week you can also save up to one dollar off per gallon at the pump with fuel points more savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping kroger worth it every time Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, and welcome to the Spark Parade, where I geek out with artists and entertainers about their cultural spark of inspiration. I'm Adam Unz. Thanks so much for joining me. Uh, Coming up today is my chat with producer, director, and creator Brian Volk Weiss, who is talking to me about one of our mutual favorites, Paul Thomas Anderson's Daniel Day-Lewis starring masterpiece, There Will Be Blood. Uh, Yeah, I said masterpiece, and I fucking meant it. I love this movie so hard, and as we all know... I love it when my guests want to talk about something for which we both have a tremendous amount of mutual affection. So this was a really fun one for me, and I think it'll be a really fun one for you, too. Um, Little spoiler warning, if you haven't seen There Will Be Blood, which came out in 2007, so you've had time, frankly. But if you haven't seen it, please know that there are spoilers aplenty in this episode. So do with that information what you will, and let's dive right into the meat and potatoes of our metaphorical podcast dinner. So, uh, quick Brian facts. Queens, New York native Brian Volkweiss is a director, producer, creator, and the CEO and founder of the Nacelle Company. He has guided Nacelle from an emerging comedy production and distribution house to an American diversified media company, leading the charge in the pop culture, documentary, and distribution space. It was established in 2017, and since then, Nacelle has produced and distributed scripted and unscripted content and established podcasting, development, distribution, records, publishing, marketing, and management divisions. Whew! Brian has created, directed, and produced hits such as Netflix's docuseries Down to Earth with Zac Efron, Kevin Hart's Guide to Black History, CW's Discontinued, All the Way Black for BET+, and History's Center Seat 55 Years of Star Trek. The Nacelle Company's A Toy Story Near You Season 3 is available on Amazon Prime. It travels the globe to visit favorite toy stores and meet the small business owners who keep the vintage toy community running. And if that wasn't enough... In celebration of the new Disney Jungle Cruise movie's release on July 30th, Brian directed Behind the Attractions, which is available now on Disney+, and that gives viewers an exclusive peek behind the curtain of the most beloved attractions and destinations at Disney parks and resorts around the world. That one was executive produced by none other than Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Pretty cool, right? Um... Quick There Will Be Blood facts. There Will Be Blood is an American epic period drama film written and directed by Paul Thomas Anderson. It was loosely based on the 1927 novel Oil by Upton Sinclair. It stars Daniel Day-Lewis as Daniel Plainview, a silver miner turned oil man on a ruthless quest for wealth during Southern California's oil boom of the late 19th and early 20th centuries. 
There Will Be Blood received widespread critical acclaim for its cinematography, direction, screenplay, and the performances of Day-Lewis and Paul Dano. Daniel Day-Lewis went on to win... The Oscar, BAFTA, Golden Globe, Screen Actors Guild, NYFCC, and IFTA Best Leading Actor Awards for the role. It has been widely regarded by critics as one of the greatest films of the 21st century. Okay, there you have it. And now, on with the show. Here comes my chat with Brian Volkweiss about There Will Be Blood. So, first question is always, uh, do you remember seeing this movie for the first time? Do you remember hearing about it um, before it came out? Yeah. Um, you know, honestly, it, it, I, I didn't have too much of a desire to see it. Uh, the, the theme, of course, I was into, but I wasn't, uh, I, I wasn't a crazy fan of anybody. I know this is so horrible to say because these are some of the most respected people in the business, but... I, I I just, I wasn't a huge fan of anybody. Like I wasn't a huge fan of the director. I wasn't a huge fan of the cast. I knew a little bit about Doheny, but like I, I, I really wasn't excited about it. And it was really interesting. I had a three in the morning flight to Australia. Oh my God. And uh, the people I was going with we're like, let's just see a movie. Like we had nothing to do from like six o'clock until three in the morning. So we went to like a 10 p.m. show at the Grove Theater in L.A. Kind of because it was the only movie playing that late. And it was the perfect time to see a movie, burn up time and make still make our flight. That might be the only reason why I even saw it. All right. Yeah, I had a similar experience that it was very much judging a book by its cover. I mean, I think to my mind, the the theme, just thinking about like oil prospecting, I was like, Jesus, who wants to see that? And it's almost three hours long. Like, oh, that sounds really boring. And it reminds me of the feeling I had when I heard that Darren Aronofsky was making a movie about ballet. And I was like, who wants to see that? And then, you know, the end result is like, absolutely miles away from anything I could have expected. It's an interesting comp you brought up. And to me, at least, this is a big part of why I think there will be blood, in my opinion, uh, is the greatest movie ever made. I really, I mean, I was blown away by Black Swan, like Mm. almost everybody. I was blown away, couldn't believe it, riveting, everything about it was A+. You could not pay me to ever watch that movie again. I I will never watch that again in a Mm. thousand years. I watch There Will Be Blood at least once a year, sometimes two or three times. I I find it a very enjoyable film that even though it's very dark, it's still enjoyable. Like, whereas Black Swan or even I would say Requiem for a Dream, Mm. like they're so dark that it's like, you know, is this why I go to movies? Yeah, I I think Requiem for a Dream in particular is like, there is absolutely no hope. It's so fucking bleak. But uh, the same kind of thing with Black Swan, where it's a bit more abstract, this like kind of body horror element coming into it too. And with There Will Be Blood, it's this like grand, um, the scope is so big, even though it's really small in terms of the number of people who are in it and the number of locations. Yeah. And it's this 
very expansive story that's like i don't i don't feel bored watching it that's what i was expecting as well it's like with a runtime that long you know you never know what you're gonna get but it's so enthralling and it's so beautiful to look at as well yeah yeah no i and it took a while like i i knew i liked the film the minute i got out of the theater but i it took probably 10 or more viewings before i'm like i think this is my favorite movie of all time yeah. Like it, it snuck up on me other than Star Wars and Star Trek. I always have to caveat the shit out of that. Uh, but, but yeah, it, it snuck up on me. Yeah. And just getting back to what you were saying about the, the people involved, I think I, I liked Paul Thomas Anderson's work, but there was never anything that felt like it had the weight of, of greatness to it before this. It's so funny. I would even argue I did see the greatness in him and his movies, mm. but like Christopher Nolan, Spike Lee, trying to think who else, but like anything they do, I will watch usually opening night. Mm-hmm. But I just didn't have that. And I still don't have it uh, with Paul Thomas Anderson. In fact, he teamed up with Daniel Day-Lewis on another movie uh, a couple years, I guess 10 years later or so, mm-hmm. that I would argue was borderline unwatchable. So like, it, it And again, I know that may be sacrilege to a lot of people, but it was just everything worked. Mm-hmm. And the other thing the movie did for me was like, there were actors who I never liked, who I was the biggest fan, like Paul Dano. Uh-huh. I never liked Paul Dano. In fact, Paul Dano was like an actor. If he was in the movie, I'm like, ah. if right. he liked the script and agreed to do it, I probably don't want to see it. Yeah. Um, and I'll be honest with you, I didn't even know he was in the movie. Mm. Uh, so, but afterwards, he's now one of my favorite actors of all time. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, he wasn't the original actor cast right. to play that role and like leapt into it, had four days to prepare. And that makes it even more mind boggling to me. But that specific kind of sniveling, weaselly ambition that is a contrast to this very like bombastic ambition coming from uh, Daniel Day-Lewis. And it's the perfect counterpoint. Yeah, a really phenomenal performance. And, and, and it's, it's that relationship that you don't see in movies very often where, and again, it takes seeing the movie a few times to even put this together. But, you know, they're constantly swapping. Who's the good guy and who's the bad guy? And by the end of the movie, they're they're both bad. Right. It, it's and how often do you see that in like what I, I I have a tendency to put things in terms of Star Wars. Like imagine if by the end of Star Wars, Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader were both the bad guy. Like that's what their will be blood does. Where yes, he killed a man, but that man was really bad. Like it, it's it's this. And it's, I think, part of why I love the movie so much. Like, it really shows you capitalism. Mm-hmm. Like, on the one hand, Doheny built this company that its ancestors are still alive and thriving this very second right now, mm-hmm. which has provided hundreds of thousands of jobs, tons, like, help make the world more united because of the product they made, all this stuff. But then on the other hand, you're basically watching a very damaged borderline, arguably by the end of the film, absolutely evil person. Mm-hmm. Like, is that what it takes to build a company out of nothing? 
Right. And that's, I think, a big part of why I like the movie, because it shows, you know, by the time he dies, he's one of the richest people who ever lived. If you take into uh, inflation into account. Yeah, I think it's I mean, there's so many complex issues that are brought up by this film. They're all kind of bubbling around in my head. But the, the kind of relentlessness of greed and the addictive nature of success and showing that, you know, this man who has built his fortune discovers oil almost by accident, you know, while uh, mining other things and his ambition just kind of taking over everything and slowly losing every aspect of his humanity. You know, from the beginning, there are things about him that hint at the kind of greedy monster he's going to become. But it is also this reflection of, you know, what we're seeing today that in particular, the oil industry really having this attitude that is like, I don't care if the planet is being destroyed. The most important thing is that we keep making money. And, uh, and I think that's the thing to me that gets even more relevant and prominent when I watch it is this idea that it, uh, you know, thinking about tech billionaires as well. It's very clear to everyone, whatever talking points they deliver to the public, the most important thing is the bottom line and accumulating more and more wealth and that there's not a lot of room for anything else. Yeah, no, it's um, it's it's so funny. You know, Abraham, there's a, a, a brilliant, I think, Abraham Lincoln quote that is not very well known, and I'm going to butcher it. I'm paraphrasing. <laughs> but the gist of the quote is, if you're walking down the street and there's a crazy dog and you get into a fight with the dog, even if you kill the dog, if he's bitten you during the fight, you're going to have the damage from those bites the rest of your life. And that's what I feel there will be blood shows. Imagine if you're so close to being successful after decades of failure that this lunatic priest comes out of nowhere, forces you to get baptized, mm. forces you to do all these things you don't want to do, and then you prevail. You eventually not only defeat him with the milkshake of it all, but you fucking smash his brains in with a fucking bowling pin. Right. I think Abraham Lincoln's point is, yes, Dohe I don't even know his name in the movie, but I know it's based on Doheny. Mm -hmm. Yes, Doheny beated Paul, beat Paul Dano, yes, but the psychological damage from beating him, it's not like you beat him and go back to being normal and live your life. Right. The psychological trauma from having to deal with what Paul Dano did, that stays with you forever. Right. And my guess is, Obviously, the movie is only showing, if we had to guess, 10 to 20 percent of what Doheny did. Mm. So obviously, he had to do some other bad stuff to people and other bad things were done to him by other people. That takes its toll psychologically. Right. And I think the last line of the film, which is like one of my favorite final lines in any film ever, saying, I'm finished, which obviously means many things. Oh, but... Uh, yeah. I'm so glad you said that because everybody talks about the milkshake. I drank your milkshake. What you just said is actually my second favorite line in the movie. Mm. My favorite line in the movie comes about 30 to 60 seconds earlier. And it's a callback to another brilliant thing the movie did that almost no movie ever does. 
where halfway through the movie, after he gets, after Doheny gets baptized, he's walking, you know, Paul Dano has like his arm around him and everything. And he whispers something into Paul. He's smiling. Mm-hmm. You know, Daniel Day-Lewis is smiling. He just got baptized. Everything's great. And he's smiling and he whispers in Paul Dano's ear something. And you see Paul Dano's eyes go wide, smile disappears. And only at the end of the movie, about a 30 to 60 seconds before that line you just quoted, I'm finished. You remember what he says? I, can't, I don't. He goes, I told you, I told you I would eat you. <laughs> and that's what he said. To, that's what he whispered in his ear. And that's yeah. what he did. That's literally what he did. Dude, I'm telling you, man, I don't think I have ever had an experience in a movie theater. Like that last, like when everything starts to go off the rails and he's chasing him around the bowling alley. By the way, I went to the Biltmore, uh, where it was at, you know, actually inspired by, and I've been to the house in Los Angeles where it actually, quote unquote, happened because nothing like that actually happened. Right. But like it, dude, I was like, I, I, I don't know if I've ever even had this experience, not in a movie theater. I was laughing uncontrollably out of like fear, awkwardness, and what the fuck am I watching? Right. When he's chasing him around the, am I allowed to curse? Yes. Sorry. Please. I should have asked at the no. beginning. <laughs> it's totally um, fine. But I, I, I was like falling out of my chair laughing, but it was uncomfortable mm. laughing. I mean, it was so bonkers. That scene is insane. Yeah. And I know that it's divisive. I know that some people think it's like too over the top and that it's a different tone to the rest of the film. But to me, Not at all. It's the culmination of all of this like pent up stuff, this like rage and resentment. And it's not just about the person in front of him. It's about his son. It's about everything that he's lost. It's about the fact that he's ending the film as he started alone. And he has sacrificed everything Everything. personal to him. He he has everything and nothing. You just reminded me it's it's very similar to a lot of the quote unquote uh, controversy with the last episode of Game of Thrones, Mm. where everybody's like, and believe me, there's a thousand things I hated about the last season, a thousand things I hated about the last two episodes, don't get me wrong, but Khaleesi said the entire show what she was gonna do. Mm -hmm. There's a scene, like two or three seasons earlier, where she's talking to Peter Dinklage, and and Peter Dinklage is like, blah, 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 you gotta stop the wheel, and she goes, I'm not trying to stop the wheel. I'm trying to break the wheel. So, of course, she's going to burn the city to the ground for the same reason Doheny does what he does. It's, a, it's exactly what you just said. It's a lifetime of getting kicked in, uh, in the ribs or whatever you want to call it. Mm. And finally, you get to the point that you've worked towards your entire life where if I do one bad thing now, it made a little bit more sense for Khaleesi to do it than Doheny. Right. But it's, a, it's exactly what you just said. It's a lifetime of resentment despite the success. Right. If we were robots, there's a great scene in Terminator 2 mm. where Terminator 2 and the Terminator are fighting. It's the first time they're really fighting. It's like a fist fight, pounding, pounding, pounding. Finally, the T-1000 gets the Terminator's arm stuck in that gear Mm -hmm. and Schwarzenegger can't get out. And the T-1000 immediately 
turns and starts looking for Sarah Connor again. That's what everybody should be doing. That's what Doheny should be doing. The minute he drains the oil out of Paul Dano's field, he should reset his brain and move on like the T-1000. That's not human nature. Mm -hmm. If you're the type of personality to actually do what Doheny did to Paul Dano's character, you don't have the ability to switch off and move on like a robot. You're a victim in his mind Mm -hmm. of what he had been put through. Right. And that's, I think, what leads to the ending. And to your point, that's why I think the ending is completely motivated and logical mm-hmm. by the prior two and a half hours. Right. And uh, also the need for dominance. And from the beginning, you know, saying to this guy from the second that Paul Dano's character is like, oh, I need to bless the well. And he turns around and just does it on his own and makes it really clear that he's like feeding the words back to Paul Dano that he wanted to say. And it's like, he just needs to own him and he needs to make it clear that he's the one in charge and that there was nothing that this person could do. That even when he's being baptized, he's the one in charge. He's doing it as a means to an end. And the second it's done, he's back to just saying, you are going to pay for making me do this. And that thing is stuck in his mind. And then it's This guy comes into his house at the end and he's, you know, just drunk and miserable. And like I said, he has everything that he ever wanted, but is completely alone and sees this like emblem of everything that he's wanted to crush. And he fucking crushes it. Because he realizes he can. Yeah. By the way, there's another scene in the movie, which is always one of my favorite scenes in the film from the first time I saw it. And... It, again, it's not a fancy, flashy, sexy scene. It's in many ways a very boring scene. But to me, it always has underscored who Doheny was and why he became who he became. And that's the scene in the restaurant where all the fancy people from Standard Oil and Shell and everybody else is just kind of talking down to him and treating him like, you know, like a loser. Mm-hmm. So imagine a lifetime of being a loser and then you win. Imagine what that does to a human soul right? psychologically, a lifetime of that. Right. And the things that he's willing to sacrifice to keep that momentum going. And that scene with his son, the last scene with his son when he's an adult and he's saying, you know, I love you so much, but I need to make my own way. And I want to, you know, I'm married. I want to like forge my own path. And you know that Daniel Day-Lewis isn't thinking, I hate you now and I never want to see you again. It's like there is, he, he feels the same way about his son, but he also says, you are now my competitor <laughs> and I can't have that. So yeah. get the fuck out of my life. Yeah. And you know, you, that last scene, you see the emotional toll that it has taken on him. Both of them. Right. To have to give, you know, everything that they have to their ambition and one person is really successful because of it. One person is absolutely broken because of it and is, you know, reduced to begging to try to get his life back on track. Um, and I think that's another element of it is that he doesn't just see this person who's his adversary. He sees somebody who is the exact kind of weakness that he deplores. Exactly right. So, yeah. And and the fact that this film is like building and building and building to that like frenzied ending. And it starts with this like 
wordless 15 minutes that, you know, the uh, yeah. comparison in my mind was like to 2001, where, you know, the very beginning, like apes learning how to use tools. And it's the same kind of feeling where it's this guy like just getting his head around the idea of how to even extract oil from the ground, where to find it, all of those things. And the pace just keeps slowly building and building and building until the end when it's just like lightning fast. Just brilliant. But it's interesting. I'm glad you brought it up because, you know, you see him at the end of the movie in the house. And by the way, uh, uh, you should go. I don't know where you live, but if you're ever in L.A., man, it's the house is exponentially more impressive in real life yeah. than it's actually portrayed in the film. Mm. It, it To me, I always found the opening interesting, but it really pays off at the ending where you have to remind, especially after you've seen it more than once where you remember, oh, th- this guy was literally clinging by his fingernails right. uh, in, in, a, in a hole by himself with a broken leg, survived that, built what he built, and now he's in a mansion in Beverly Hills. Yeah. That's what makes that opening worth it. Yeah. And that, that opening, in a way, when I started watching the movie, movie for the first time, it was like all of my worst fears about what it was going to be realized. Yes. And I was just like, oh, Same. this is yeah. going to be so fucking boring and it's three hours Attention. long and whatever. That's that's what I was worried about. I'll tell you something. I'm gonna, the epitome of what I shouldn't say, but <laughs> I hate, and I mean hate, Gangs of New York. I can not that to me is what i call an emperor's new clothes like eyes wide shut is another example like these are movies that if anybody likes them and i know millions of people do god bless you and i respect your opinion but if somebody tells me they like gangs in new york there's a 99 percent chance their movie opinions and my movie opinions will not be in sync and i'm not saying i'm right and they're wrong i just mean odds are we ain't gonna agree on movies yeah but my takeaway from Gangs of New York kind of was the opposite of what I said earlier about Paul Dano, where I never loved or hated Daniel Day-Lewis. I always respected him. But after Gangs of New York, I was like, eh, this guy's not for me. It turned me off for Scorsese for a long time. Yeah. I think only Departed yeah. uh, is what got me back into Scorsese. Absolutely. But um, you're, what you just said, I forgot about it until you said it, but... That that opening, I'm like, oh, here we fucking go. We're going to be staring at mud on fingers and right. eyes and like mm-hmm. uh, like beautiful shots of sunsets. Wonderful. So I totally forgot about that. But you're absolutely right. Yeah. I was very worried during that first 20 minutes. Yeah. But then it hauls when the people start showing up and like then it then it starts moving really fast. Yeah. Oh, my God. The scene on the train. Mm-hmm. And again, it's such a powerful moment because if you watch it more than once, you know what he's going to become. And it's actually upon a second viewing, in many ways, the saddest part of the movie, Mm -hmm. because you can see this moment where he truly, even if he brought the son along as a sales gimmick, Mm -hmm. it's the scene where he puts him on the train with his number one lieutenant because he knew he couldn't do it himself. Right. It's got, I'm like literally getting emotional right now, remembering that scene, because it's like the beginning of the end of as he's, there's a great, I know I'm jumping around a lot, but there's, you know, that song, um, Gloria, Mm -hmm. there's a great line in the song where she says, see your innocence slipping away. Don't think it's coming back soon. Mm -hmm. 
And it's that moment in the movie where that's where you start to see his innocence slipping away. Right. And it, God, is it just gut-wrenching what it leads to. Yeah. And again, it's just like a, a sign of the beginning of giving up the things that are dearest to him because they stand in the way of his ambition. The quote, just, I, I need to do as many quotes as possible, <laughs> apparently, during this conversation. Um, there's a great line towards the end of The Untouchables where um, Kevin Costner goes to the judge and he's convincing the judge to switch the juries. Mm -hmm. And he says to the judge, I have become what I sought to destroy and I am confident that I have done right. And that's sort of what you can see Doheny doing is where he's like, listen, I came here to become successful and I need to, yeah, I need to throw my son out to do that. He's deaf now. He's not useful to me. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Just briefly going back to what you were saying, that comparison between this performance and Daniel Day-Lewis's performance in Gangs of New York that I remember like that, you know, Gangs of New York was delayed and delayed and everybody was just like waiting for it to come out. And it finally is released. And it's just like, ugh. And, and that was definitely my worst fears realized where that's like a three hour movie. And it just felt like a chore. Yeah. <laughs> right. But also it was like, a parody of what Daniel Day-Lewis was supposed to be. He's like this. Not not just him. And I know we're not here to talk about that movie, but DiCaprio is one of my favorite actors of all time. I don't know what he was doing in that movie. Uh, I've always been a fan of Cameron Diaz. That's Mm -hmm. probably the only movie I've ever seen her in where I thought her acting sucked. Uh, The sets looked like sets. Nothing looked like, like nothing in that movie looked real. Yeah. Like everything looked like wardrobe or set design or a prop. And then you get to There Will Be Blood and it almost feels like a documentary. Right. Yeah. And having Daniel Day-Lewis's performance anchor the film instead of just being this, like in my mind, I rewatched clips of Gangs of New York today just to like see if my impression was right. And it wasn't as broad as I'd remembered. But in my mind, it was like he was Popeye, just like, you know, really cartoony. And in There Will Be Blood, it's like this very fine line where it isn't caricature. It's like somebody who in real life, you would say that guy's a real character. And it still feels like a real person. Like he's somebody who is brash and has a very big personality, but he's still someone you believe. And he, he, you know, that belief in this character makes you, you know, really invested in the entire film. That's exactly right. And he also goes in it like Gangs of New York. I've only seen it once. I'll never watch it again. My memory faded. But in my mind, he's always yelling. Mm -hmm. Like the whole movie, he's yelling at everything. Like he's not talking. Right. Like you saw in There Will Be Blood him going in and out of salesman mode. Mm -hmm. So when he's in salesman mode, he's one guy. And then when he's in the field doing his job and dealing with his team, he's another guy. So you saw the contrast of who he had to be when he had to convince people to do what he wanted versus when he was working with people that he was paying. Right. Which, by the way, I mean, we're also leaving out like one of the most fucked up. It didn't even need to be in the movie, but thank God it was the guy pretending to be his brother. Right. Like, here you are. You've literally almost single-handedly willed a gigantic company into existence, literally at one point with your fingernails. 
this. Mm-hmm. Now you got a guy fucking with you that you, you're, you're all of a sudden not alone. You have a brother. Like, I mean, imagine what that does to someone's psych, psycholo- psychology right. after a lifetime of, of torture. Yeah. And, you know, when he confronts that guy and then kills him, it's the same feeling as that moment on the train with his son where it's like, I loved you, but you've got to go. <laughs> and this guy who's pretending to be his brother, he's like, I can't trust you anymore. You're now an obstacle. And he's sitting there crying, reading his brother's journal afterwards and just thinking about what he's lost, thinking about what he wanted this man to be and, you know, feeling betrayed, feeling all of these things. But the the main, the primary driving force is still like, this is a problem and it's going to prevent me from achieving my greatness. That's right. And, you know, to that point, going back to the example I brought up earlier about Terminator 2, the next time Schwarzenegger and the T-1000 get into a fight, a fist fight, the T-1000 doesn't make the same mistake. Mm-hmm. He knocks him down, he's down, and instead of walking off, he goes out of his way to pick up that metal rod and impale him. Right. And that was always, like, it's the same thing, I think, with Doheny, where... I guarantee you in stuff that's not in the movie, he let weakened adversaries go away and they came back and hurt him. Right. So I think that's what we're seeing is he learned from those quote unquote mistakes and now he's become the textbook definition of, of ruthless. Right. Oh, yeah. What a um, breathtakingly amazing film. Uh, dude, I, I haven't seen it in probably about eight or nine months. I, I will probably watch it tonight. Yeah. Yeah. I uh, I watched it this week and it's just like ev- every bit as good as I remember. Yeah. Absolutely perfect. A plus film. Everybody who worked on that movie was operating at the best anybody can operate in, in the business. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my last side note is Johnny Greenwood's score. The like you know, just subtle, like strings, just this kind of like buzzing noise that is unsettling and just, you know, kind of keeps you off kilter the whole time. What a risk. What a risk that was. Mm -hmm. So much of it was a risk. It's become a part of pop culture. So people forget about it. But like, imagine you're a studio boss being asked to spend probably 30 mil on a movie about a guy you know, create, yes, it's Paul Thomas Anderson and yada, 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 but still it's a risky green light. Mm -hmm. And then you get to the end of the script and this like dark, serious, epic, mythic guy out of nowhere starts talking about milkshakes. Right. Like that's risky. Like forget, like you would think somebody would be like, is there a better analogy? Like maybe it doesn't have to be a milkshake, but they went for it. And it's the same with the music. Like that music was bonkers, right. but it worked. And I've seen people try it and it, it, it usually doesn't work mm-hmm. what they did, but it worked. Yeah. Yeah. Just like every other element of it. Uh, um, this has been an utter pleasure. Um, same. I, I really, really enjoyed this. I love talking about this movie. Thank you so much. This, same. This Thank you. This was fun. Yeah. All right. Thanks a lot. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Well, that was super fun. Thanks again to Brian for coming on the show and uh, giving me an excuse to talk about one of my favorite movies. Okay, uh, super quick inspirational artwork of the week for me. Hulu 
has recently released the second season of Channel 4's brilliant comedy drama, This Way Up, and I love it. Yes, people of Britain and Ireland, I know you saw it a long time ago, but I didn't, so just bear with me, okay? It's uh, written by and starring Ashling B, who's an Irish comedian, and she's fucking hilarious, and I love her. The show is also really funny, but it touches on more serious stuff like depression and the complexities of romantic relationships, and it handles those topics really sensitively. And Sharon Horgan is in it, who you probably know from Catastrophe, which is also brilliant. And Sharon Horgan herself is brilliant. So give This Way Up a little watch if uh, all of that sounds appealing. And... That's all I've got for you. Please, please, please share this show with your friends and help it to grow and or leave me a nice little five-star review wherever you downloaded or streamed this episode. Uh, outside of that, have a great week. Don't forget to wash behind your ears. And until next time, bye. Are you an admirer of art? Do you want to know the creators of the art you love today? Then you should listen to the Postmodern Art Podcast, a weekly podcast dedicated to giving artists who are wowing the world over the platform they deserve. Sit down with your favorite artists as they discuss their passion. I couldn't have lived without art, I don't think. It's like my whole life. Hardship. My payment before was like around $50 a week. What? Heartfelt moments. I recently actually got a message about some of my drawings and somebody was saying, oh, my kid really, really appreciated those. And they've been drawing ever since she started doing those things. And that, that, that makes me feel really good. And some fun in between. You gotta make me tear up already. Gotta uh, cry. <laughs> <laughs> the Postmodern Art Podcast. New episodes every Thursday on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and most podcast platforms. Thanks for listening to the Apocalypse Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, go to apocalypsepodcastnetwork.com. And remember, every time you support one of our sponsors, you're supporting the podcast you just heard. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity. And the American dream starts with purpose. Whether your pursuit involves a bachelor's, master's, or doctoral degree, GCU's learning environments are designed for supportive networking and collaboration. With over 330 academic programs, GCU provides a path to help you fulfill your dreams. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu.